Police said the victims were beaten and shot in a house trailer at the California Cheese Company at 1451 Sunny Court in San Jose, a company owned by the Marino family, members of which figured prominently in the testimony in former San Francisco Mayor Joseph L. Alioto's libel lawsuit against Look Magazine for writing that Alioto was connected to the mafia. The victims were identified by police as Orlando J. Catelli, 50, and his son, Peter Catelli, 24, both of 945 Bancroft Road, apartment 116A in Concord. They were discovered at about 9.30 p.m. yesterday, locked in the trunk of the father's 1975 white Cadillac DeVille, which was parked at the curb at Garfield Park in the 2900 block of Harrison Street. James McIntyre of 2905 Harrison Street called police when he heard loud thumping from inside the car trunk. Police and firemen pried open the trunk to find Peter Catelli dead from a gunshot wound in the back of his head. Orlando Catelli had also been shot in the head, but he was alive and talking. The Legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast. Hosted by history buff and mob aficionado, Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a mob enthusiast and historian. In today's episode, we will be going back to sunny California to finish up our series on one of the smaller and lesser known Cosa Nostra families within the United States, the Cerrito crime family. The Cerrito crime family of Cosa Nostra operating in and around San Jose, California, was the primary entity controlling organized crime in San Jose, California for 40 or 50 years until the late 1970s and early 1980s. In part one, we covered a lot of the family's origins as well as the eras of the original boss, Anafrio Shortino, as well as the second boss and family namesake, Joseph Cerrito. In that episode, although it was very boss-centric, we covered a lot about the family as a whole throughout the 1950s, 60s, and into the 1970s up to Joe Cerrito's death in 1978. In today's episode, we're going to cover what I'll just call the Marino era of the crime family, which does overlap quite a bit with the Cerrito area, but extends several years after Joe Cerrito's death, and we'll finally put a button on the San Jose family as a whole. 
Now, I will just caveat, this episode will be Merino-centric. If you want the broader picture of the Cerrito family, uh, I would say please refer back to part one. However, the good news is both eras overlap somewhat, so you're really not going to be missing a whole lot, and there was quite a lot to cover with the Merinos, as you're about to find out. Now, before we get into the episode, I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you to all of my subscribers. We finally hit 8,000, and we're, as of the point of this recording, at about 8,100 subscribers on YouTube. And we're doing quite well on the audio-only platforms. And while I'm still a smaller podcast, and I, I know that I produce content far more slowly than other podcasts, I do appreciate all the kind words you've sent me. I'm a one-man operation, and the support you provide kind of keeps me grinding and keeps me pushing forward in my in my research, which is, uh, I have to admit, it's pretty pretty extensive. Every episode, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it. My ultimate goal over time is to cover every single family across the United States, as well as dipping into biographies of both important as well as lesser known mafia members. Most of this genre, uh, quite honestly, if I think of the genre as a whole, it tends to be focused on New York or Chicago. And certainly I'll keep touching on them from time to time. I haven't even touched Chicago yet, by the way. But my general focus, until I've covered everything, will likely be families, uh, you know, outside of the bigger hubs while kind of dipping in and out of the big hubs until I finally run out of everything to cover and have to cover those families. Uh, for anyone new to the channel, I'd ask that you hit that subscribe button and turn on the bell to get notifications. For those that listen just to the audio version, go on over to Apple and leave a review, uh, leave a rating, good, bad, or ugly. I will take it all in stride. All right. Now that I've kept you waiting, let's get into the episode, the final chapter of the Cerrito family of San Jose, California. After the family namesake Joe Cerrito passed away in 1978, the next man to allegedly be anointed as boss of this small California family was a man named Angelo Marino. Before we get into Marino, here's a quick recap on the Cerrito crime family for those that didn't watch the first episode. Based in San Jose, the Cerrito family surprisingly had connections with families all over the country, and family namesake Joe Cerrito was present at the 1957 Appalachian Mob Conference, which is probably the claim to fame, the biggest claim to fame, to the entire family. That being said, throughout the 1950s and 1960s, the family at large can probably be characterized as the least aggressive and least lethal LCN family in the entire country, with its members showing an extreme aversion to actually committing crimes and or murders. And one can argue, maybe this is good, maybe this is bad, but if you're an LCN family, like it it, it kind of comes with the, the territory, and they were very reticent to do any of that. By the 1960s, the family had roughly 20 to 25 made members operating in and around San Jose, but reports would indicate that this family in particular had probably the highest percentage of informants talking with the FBI of any family in the entire country. 
And while most members of the Cerrito family would stay out of major legal trouble, my theory is that was due in part to their focus on legitimate sources of income and activities, but probably in larger part due to the fact that this family was, in fact, spilling so much information about other families around the country that the FBI kept them on the street to keep the information flowing, largely seeing them as somewhat harmless. Again, this is speculation on, on my part, but really I think the FBI wanted to keep that, that uh, information spigot flowing so that it could get at the other families around the country, most specifically, in this case, the California families with whom the Cerritos were very familiar. Over the course of his reign, while Cerrito was very good at keeping his family running in the sense that they weren't getting jammed up, several issues over time led to what I'll just say a general lack of confidence in his leadership and an atmosphere where nobody in the family was probably very content with their situation, had a lot of malcontent within the family. And speaking of people who showed great discontent with Joe Cerrito, one of the biggest sources of that discontent and just general grief amongst members of the Cerrito crime family was the aforementioned Angelo Marino. Angelo Marino had been a longtime soldier and sometimes capo to Cerrito and unfortunately was in hot water before ever taking the boss's chair if he ever took it in the first place, and we'll cover that in great depth in this episode. Now, what I will say is when I talk to people local to the area, there does seem to even still be a healthy amount of fear and respect for, for the Marinos and, and specifically Angelo Marino. And as you're, you're going to see uh, you know, in the research, that was not really the guy I found uh, not to say that that he didn't earn certain aspects of that because he certainly did, but that was just not the guy uh, that I found by and large. However, um, before we talk about the issues he had over time and his supposed rise to boss, let's dig into Angelo Marino's background as there are some very interesting connections that I did not expect to find in my research. And the Marinos, just like the Cerritos before them, truly had connections all over the country in some unexpected places. According to reports, Angelo Anthony Marino was born on May 31, 1924 in Sharon, Pennsylvania, which is, of course, for those local to Pennsylvania in Mercer County. He was born to father Salvatore Marino and mother Josephine Marino, whose maiden name was Rocca Palumbo. However, uh, for some unknown reason, the birth registration for Angelo, his actual paperwork, wasn't actually filed until February 1st, 1943, almost 20 years later, a topic that would actually come up in an Immigration and Naturalization Service investigation of his father, Salvatore. Angelo's certificate of baptism would officially name him Angelus Antonius Marino, though most reports would refer to him by the aforementioned Angelo Anthony Marino. Angelo's father, Salvatore, was himself born in 1898 in South Flavia, a town in Palermo, Sicily, while his mother, Josephine, was born stateside in 1901 in Hillsdale, Pennsylvania. According to records, Angelo had a brother, Joseph, and a sister, Antoinette. 
According to later reports, Salvatore came to Boston in 1922 and one week later moved to Sharon, Pennsylvania, starting in the rackets about eight years after arriving in Sharon, PA. According to records, his son Angelo Marino would go on to attend Sharon High School in Sharon, Pennsylvania from 1938 to 1941. However, pretty big world event was happening at the, the time, that being World War II, and during 1942, Angelo would attend Greenbrier Military Academy and then would serve in the Army as a mess sergeant and gun crewman during World War II for roughly three years before being discharged sometime in 1945. After the war, Angelo had a choice to make about what he wanted to do with his life, and for young Angelo, honestly, it really wasn't even a choice at all. You see, for Angelo Marino, the Mafia was a family business. Angelo's father, Salvatore Marino, was a longtime member and leader within the Pittsburgh LCN family, which was controlled at the time by a man named Sebastian John LaRocca. Additionally, to further the connections in the mid-1940s in Philadelphia, Angelo was married to a woman named Precious R. Maggio, who had familial connections to the mob herself. Uh, and if you've watched the Angelo Bruno episodes, you would, you would make this connection. Uh, and she would be a critical part of Angelo's story, as her father was none other than Michael Maggio, who was, in fact, a longtime leader in the Joseph Ida family in Philadelphia. The couple would go on to have four children, Salvatore, who would also go into the family business, Josephine, Michael, and Angela. To showcase the strong connections between the Marinos, the Pittsburgh and Philadelphia families, it was reported that at this wedding, besides the Maggios, you also had Pittsburgh boss John LaRocca, longtime underboss and future boss himself of Pittsburgh, Mike Genovese, and soldier Gabriel Kelly Manorino uh, in attendance at that wedding as well. In fact, there would also be records captured in the early 1960s that indicated Salvatore Marino was one of the names in the address book of none other than the subject of many of my recent episodes, Angelo Bruno. Apparently, the Marinos and Bruno had known each other for many years, going back to the Marinos' time living in Pennsylvania and due to the marriage connections between the two families. The Marinos would travel back to Pennsylvania at least yearly, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, uh, and were even present at the wedding of Angelo Bruno's daughter on August 26th, 1962. And there is an interesting wiretap around this time where Angelo Bruno, Russell Buffalino, and Peter Maggio were picked up talking about the Marinos, Salvatore, and Angelo. So there definitely was familiarity there. Uh, it's not like the San Jose family was just off on the West Coast and, and nobody knew who they were or communicated, communicated with them. Uh, there definitely was uh, those connections. Now, while Precious Maggio's father, Michael, had passed away by the 1950s, mid-1950s, I believe, her three brothers, Peter, Mario, and Salvatore, were still very close with Angelo Bruno, who took over as boss of the Philly Borgata in around 1959 or 1960, and were fairly influential themselves. In fact, Peter would allegedly be elevated to capo in the 1960s, so Precious's brothers were honestly not people to trifle with. Uh, but as you're going to see, Marino was absolutely one of those types of people that 
almost can't help themselves but to step on other people's toes. Around 1950, Angelo's father, Salvatore, would create the California Cheese Company, which is what the Marinos would come to be probably most well-known for, located at both 295 West San Carlos Street and 1451 Sunny Court in San Jose, California. And Salvatore would create the company with a man named William Bionde, who was himself connected in the Pennsylvania underworld and through marriage uh, to the Maggio family was the brother-in-law of Angelo Marino. In around 1950 or 1951, Salvatore would bring his 25-year-old son Angelo in as a partner in the California Cheese Company, taking over the interests of Biondi, and they would operate the company as partners for many years with Angelo managing the company. Marino had previously been employed at the Maggio Cheese Company prior to heading out west. Confirming this date is the fact that young Angelo shows up in the 1950 census records of San Jose, California, listed uh, with his wife Precious and their firstborn son Salvatore, with the occupation listed as cheese manufacturer. Reports in the late uh, 1950s would have authorities suggesting that the California Cheese Company served as a mail drop in front for the mafia, to which the Marinos would counter as being ridiculous and threatening to sue. In the prior 20 years, Angelo's father, Salvatore, as I said, also a member of organized crime with the Pittsburgh LCN family, was allegedly an employee and partner of the Tri-State Music Company under his wife's name, which leased, installed, and repaired jukeboxes and machines, and also leased and sold records. According to several reports, Salvatore Marino was big into the numbers racket while basing his operations out of Sharon, Pennsylvania. A report out of the Pittsburgh FBI office in around 1943 describes Salvatore Marino as numbers kingpin in that section, meaning in and around Sharon, PA, and advised that he and his associates primarily operated out of an establishment called the Topsy Turvy Inn, located just across the Pennsylvania state line in Missouri, Ohio. At some point in around 1949 or 1950, the Tri-State Music Company was taken over by the Gully Bank, and at the time, Salvatore and his family, including Angelo, left Sharon, Pennsylvania, and headed west, settling in San Jose, California. They'd keep a piece of the Tri-State Music Company into the 1950s at least, but going forward, their focus would be on their operations in California. It's at this point that Salvatore was transferred from the LaRocca family in Pittsburgh to what was then the Shortino family in San Jose. And I'm just going to say uh, last episode, I pronounced it Schiortino, uh, and I've been uh, told it's actually Shortino. So I'm trying to get on the, the right track with respect to the pronunciation. Everybody knows that I'm terrible at pronunciation. Now, when he gets to the Shortino uh, family, he would make the rank of capo at some point in the 1950s, that being Salvatore Marino. To further show the connections, again, between the San Jose-Pittsburgh, San Francisco families, there was an issue in March of 1956 in which Angelo's father, Salvatore, would be caught traveling with Pittsburgh boss John LaRocca all the way out in Los Angeles, California. 
The pair would be followed by police to the movie town moat on 5920 Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, which was owned by a man named Anthony Pinelli, an associate of Chicago outfit bosses Sam Giancana and Tony Accardo. So big connections. Pinelli was believed to be a leading figure in narcotics operating in Gary, Andy, Indiana, of all places. The police would detain and, according to the report, shook down both LaRocca and Marino. In the possession of Salvatore Marino were business cards belonging to Charlie Carboni, a.k.a. Charles Carbone, underboss of the Cerrito crime family with whom Marino was a close friend, and Joseph uh, Chiana, another organized crime figure with ties to the San Jose Mafia. During surveillance, the pair were reportedly accompanied for a time by Frank D. Simone, the boss of the Los Angeles LCN family. So again, making connections with pretty well-known figures. So, you know, again, more documented evidence of key family members meeting, and in this case, meeting with someone who had a history in the narcotics trade and important connections in Chicago as well. Now, I realize that we're kind of flipping back and forth between father and son. We're also flipping back and forth with respect to timelines. But it's important to note that the relative path of father and son within the Cerrito crime family were somewhat intertwined. By 1962, reports out of the San Francisco and Philadelphia FBI field offices would describe Angelo Marino as being a capo regime in Cosa Nostra. Now, first off, uh, this would, of course, indicate that at some point, Likely in the 1950s, Angelo had been made and had since been promoted to capo by his family's boss, Joe Cerrito, though many you know, later, including San Francisco boss James Lanza, would openly suggest that Angelo was made a capo too soon, so promoted too soon. Now, how does Angelo Marino become a capo, you might ask? Uh, well, as with many things in this episode, it wasn't without a bit of family-related drama. This drama in particular happened as a result of the transfer of another uh, LCN member, Pittsburgh LCN soldier, Dominic Anzalone, from that family out west to join the Cerrito family. An FBI report from 1967 would describe the situation, which I'm kind of picking up somewhat in the middle of a much longer report, which appears to have taken place earlier in the 1960s, leading up to Angelo's promotion to Capo in 1962. Quote, The informant indicated that Anzalone continues to lose the respect of his fellow members because he continually complains about his loss of money while making no effort to recover what is rightfully his. The fact that he is extremely wealthy and still worries about his money has brought him only disgust from fellow members who no longer have sympathy for him. On May 5th, 1967, the aforementioned informant advised that he had visited Anzalone earlier that week and that Anzalone appeared to be in poor spirits as a result of his concern relating to a deportation hearing. His attorney had instructed him to discontinue association with anyone of questionable reputation until the conclusion of his hearing, and Anzalone continued to moan that John LaRocca is making money by the bushel basket. 
In discussing further information concerning Anzalone, this informant advised that when Anzalone moved from Pennsylvania to California, he was placed on the payroll of the California Cheese Company in San Jose for the purpose of making it appear to the Immigration and Naturalization Service that he was legitimately employed. This company is owned and operated by Sal Marino, former Capo de Decina of San Jose. Personal differences soon developed between the two, and the relationship was severed. Marino, however, had cleverly filtered word back to LaRocca in Pittsburgh that Anzalone had made specific derogatory remarks concerning LaRocca. This caused LaRocca to become disenchanted with Anzalone, who countered through his sources and was ultimately successful in convincing LaRocca that the accusations made by Marino were untrue. As a result, Marino was replaced as Capo de Decina by his son, Angelo. This has been considered as a slap in the face. The Laraca anzalone friendship will never be the same, and since this incident, Anzalone has been most circumspect in his contact with the Marinos. End quote. So this drama, though they played a part, wasn't entirely of their own making. However, what you're going to see in the rest of the episode is that the Marinos, both father and especially son, had a, tendency, had a big tendency to shoot themselves in their foot, figuratively speaking. Uh, but as I noted above, in 1962, Salvatore Marino was demoted, and Joe Cerrito, allegedly at the begging of the father, replace the elder Marino with the younger Marino. Speaking of the family boss, Joe Cerrito, who was the focus of the majority of part one, Angelo Marino, when interviewed by the FBI in 1962, stated that his friendship with Cerrito dated back 10 years uh, when the Marinos operated their cheese company at a different location in San Jose, at which point Cerrito allegedly began buying cheese from the Marinos for his own personal use. In return, the Marinos would regularly repay the favor by buying cars from Cerrito, who, as we talked about in part one, uh, you know, had had owned several auto dealerships in the San Jose area. He was big into the car dealerships. Also, by this time in 1962, Angelo's father would be taking a much less active role in running the California Cheese Company due to his failing health, ceding most of the daily operations to be run by Angelo and his brother, Joseph Pasquale Marino. In addition to the California Cheese Company, Angelo Marino would also be affiliated with and probably had a piece of the Patty Pizza Supply Company out of San Jose, owned by a close friend named P.J. Pellegrino, the cousin of a close associate of Marino's. Marino also had a piece, or at least appears uh, to have had a piece, of Angie's Pizza Parlor, along with family member Frank Sorch and a man named Ray Biley. He'd also opened Shakey's Pizza Parlor in San Leandro, California in 1964. Pizza parlors, of course, being a very natural progression of business if you own a cheese company. So it kind of makes sense that Angelo would have a piece of a few pizza shops. And I'm actually surprised that he didn't take that further, especially what we know about, you know, what went on in New York in the 1970s with respect to the pizza connection. But I do uh, surmise that that had probably more to do with Cerrito uh, and his restrictions on his soldiers than, than anything. But pizza and cheese obviously go together. 
Now, Angela would also begin to develop a relationship and would do some business with the Bonanno family, specifically William Bill Bonanno, and through association, Joe Bonanno, and would make frequent trips to Arizona as a result. So he was um, definitely an FBI paperwork, plenty of times going back and forth to Arizona, sometimes for play, other times to meet with the Bonanos. Now, in 1962, FBI reports would also indicate that while Angelo and his father were en route to Philadelphia to attend the wedding of Angelo Bruno's daughter, as I had mentioned before, they got into a heated argument. Uh, and again, this is a pretty common occurrence between father and son. During the course of the disagreement, Salvatore was heard chastising his son for running around and not respecting his father's wishes, uh, which, based on my research, had to do with a rift that had developed between Angelo's father and John LaRocca back in Pittsburgh over some unpaid debts. Now, you know, there were, were even threats to withdraw his share of the business, that being Salvatore, or sell out and move entirely to Italy. So the father, by this time in the early 60s, was definitely at odds with his son. Uh, and I'm sure that there are many fathers out there who can relate to having their sons ignore their advice. So I'll just leave that at that. But you're going to see a theme emerge as Angelo would draw the ire of not just his father, but those around him many, many times over the years. By this time, Angelo Marino was living with his wife, Precious Marino, at 1967 East Campbell Avenue in San Jose, California, while also maintaining a beach home at 611 Clubhouse Drive in Rio del Mar, Aptos, California. However, Marino would often exercise very poor judgment, and I promise this whole episode isn't just bagging on Marino, but this is what the paperwork showed, uh, and was known to have several... Uh, fairly indiscreet extramarital affairs, which by itself isn't uncommon for those in the life, but he had a way of creating a certain kind of disrespect due to his lack of discretion that would cause issues for not just himself, but his wife, and as a result, their extended family, and even the mafia family. One of these indiscreet affairs, and probably the main one in the early part of 1962, was a tumultuous affair with a woman named Maria Mack that would lead to a warning from his underworld compatriots where he was threatened uh, with a beating because he'd been out of line. But even with that threat, Angelo would refuse to break off the extramarital affair, which in most families, if you had crossed a certain line, which it appears that he did, would get you killed. However, as we saw in part one of the Cerrito crime family history, the San Jose family under the leadership of Joe Cerrito was not a very deadly family. So you could uh, get a lot farther, uh, you know, with indiscretions. Now, why was Angelo Marino deemed to be out of line? Well, you know, digging a little bit farther into this, I found a report that indicated that Marino had pretty directly threatened his paramour, Maria, also called Marino for some reason in, in an FBI report, by showing her his Colt 45 during an intense discussion. Uh, it was known to the FBI that Marino was a potentially very dangerous man who kept a loaded revolver on the premises of the California Cheese Company. Now, to her credit, Maria a firebrand, definitely, was noted to have not backed down, brandishing her very own 38 
right back at him. Uh, so she was pretty fierce herself. He shows you his gun. She just pulls her gun right back, right back out. It kind of reminds me of maybe a Virginia Hill type. Apparently the issue though, uh, in this particular argument was that Maria wanted to take a trip to get away from Angelo, who in many reports came across as being very, very possessive of Maria. The trip was to Las Vegas to see a person named Chris. Upon hearing this request, Marino was reported by an informant to have said that if Maria went to Las Vegas to see Chris, he would kill them both. He also referred to Chris in obscene terms, saying that he had had bad luck ever since 1949 when he first walked into Chris's office. Now, the only thing I can surmise is that Chris uh, was an old boyfriend of Maria's. So this incident more than likely trickled back to the LCN bosses in San Jose and San Francisco, which put Marino in extremely hot water. Now, say what you will about Cosa Nostra, but hurting women was one area where the larger organization, in most cases, tended to take uh, a moral stance against, though it is you know, more certainly a myth that the mob never hurt women. There were plenty of instances where women were killed or shot at, uh, you know, or beaten, right? Um, so there is a bit of a, a hypocrisy here. Uh, and with this being, uh, you know, his guma, uh, I'm sure that both the, the brandishing the gun as well as the indiscretion uh, and betrayal of his wife, all along with Angelo's general behavior, played into this. This issue in particular, as well as several other issues, is likely what led to the note that I found and reported upon in part one of this Cerrito family history. Quote, on June 28, 1962, SFT-12 advised that on June 27, 1962, he determined that Joseph Cerrito had asked Miseraca, Camerata, and Costanza to take care of some unidentified individual in the San Francisco area who had gotten completely out of line. Cerrito directed that this individual be given a beating he wouldn't forget and be given to understand why he was being worked over. According to informant, Cerrito noted that even if the individual died, it would be no great loss to the organization. End quote. The report would go on to say, quote, On June 29, 1962, SFT1 advised that he felt that Marino of the California Cheese Company might possibly be the target for the beating proposed by Cerrito as described above. He said he believed this for the reason that Cerrito has displayed Marino's big shot attitude and aggressive manner in entertaining visiting hoodlums in this area, thus overshadowing Cerrito. Cerrito also feels that Marino has usurped some of his status as head of the organization in this area. Informant noted that Marino had better get in line or his head would look like a piece of mozzarella cheese. Informant also noted that Marino was having an indiscreet love affair, which was a matter discussed with Cerrito and his associates. He pointed out further that Marino's wife, the former Precious Maggio, is aware of Angelo's infidelity, and she is the daughter of the late Mike Maggio, former powerful hoodlum figure in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He noted that perhaps Marino's wife would have connections in Philadelphia, which could arrange to have Marino brought into line. End quote. 
So as you can see, in the early part of the 1960s, despite being named a capo in the Cerrito crime family, Angelo's brash behavior and infidelity was creating issues for him and the family in general. He was trying to outshine his boss, and he was risking pissing off major players in the Philadelphia family who were big-time shooters that you did not want to cross. This was on top of the rift the Marinos were having with La Roca in Pittsburgh, right? So kind of a, a trifecta of things that you did not want to, to, to have to deal with. And all of this is a tried and true recipe to get yourself whacked in the mafia. And in most families, he'd have been gone. However, as I said in part one, and as I'm probably going to continue to say, the Cerrito family under Joe Cerrito just wasn't a lethal bunch, nor did they commit a lot of crimes, let alone execute hits in the 1960s and, and 1970s. Except for one, which we'll talk about later. In fact, FBI reports would notate that the family exhibited little enthusiasm for illegal activities, though they were closely monitored to ensure illegal operations were immediately known. Uh, though they did have a lot, and I mean a lot of informants for such a small uh, 20 to 25 person family, very high percentage of informants, the FBI was still all over them. An informant would tell the FBI that after the family inducted him as a member behind a cheese factory, which we now know is probably the California Cheese Factory in San Jose, he was told he would have to pay $5 a month into the organization, though that requirement was later dropped. The family also informed him that he may be called upon to commit a crime, but that he could never commit a crime without the consent of the organization. However, they told him that if he were ordered to commit a crime, he was to try to do good work. That sounds like something you would get from your teacher in second grade, right? Uh, try to do good work in organized crime. Now, to the Cerritos family credit, due to their focus on legitimate activities, which would be uh, certainly an important aspect of the mafia, you know, in the late 80s and 90s, trying to legitimize and hide their income, the feds would have a really challenging time catching them doing anything illegal. This was pretty consistent in my research. Bringing this back to Angelo Marino, based on my research, no disciplinary actions ended up being taken by the family, so he was free to continue to operate, right? If if you're not, it's like a, being a parent. If you're not going to discipline your child, you can expect them to get more bold and more bold uh, with respect to running all over you. And it kind of seemed like Angelo was was getting getting more bold the more that he was not disciplined. However, Angelo's reputation and standing in the underworld in the early 1960s uh, was not very good at this time, as is evidenced by another note that I came across around this time. Quote, SFT-11 on July 3rd, 1962, advised that an unidentified man visited Angelo Marino at the cheese factory after hours and engaged in a long conversation with him concerning a debt Angelo owed in connection with some unidentified business. According to informant, the man gave Angelo to understand that he had taken a long time to pay and that he and others were getting concerned that Angelo wouldn't pay the debt. The impression was gained because of Angelo's reputation for spending and for owing money all around. 
It was also because many people felt he had an expensive girlfriend who he was reportedly buying costly things such as a car, mink stole, a house with a swimming pool, and a ring. Unknown man explained to Angelo that he was just not discreet anymore, that he will have to tend to business, and once the business is established, then he can have both his business and his pleasure. Unknown man, according to informant, had $2,000 coming and one Nick DeMart and Denique has $1,000 coming. Angelo was told that if he gets too far in debt, he will get into trouble someplace. Angelo, according to informant, protested that he only bought his girlfriend a $200 wristwatch for Christmas and that all the rumors heard about him are false. Angelo protested that he doesn't want to hear any more about that unless Dominic is present. Unknown man told him that Dominic, possibly Dominic Anzalone, had approved his visit. He mentioned discussing Angelo and his conduct with others on their way to Jimmy Lanza's house to play cards when others noted Angelo's absence. Angelo was warned that spending money and drinking would make some other unidentified individual unhappy if the Internal Revenue Service got onto it. Unknown man, according to informant, related how he had been at Patty Pizza Supply Company in which Angelo has an interest and was told by an unidentified person that he was thought to be Mr. Pellegrini. Informant advised that Angelo was told that he owed two grand and that's his way of paying it off. He's buying part of the kids cheese business. Angelo asked what they charged and was told it would be fair. End quote. The long report would go on to say the following. Quote, on July 4th, 1962, Angelo Marino and his girlfriend Maria were at the cheese company in the early evening and Maria got some cheese to make Angelo some cheesecake. Informant advised that Angelo was at the cheese factory on July 16th, 1962 and slept there during the night. According to informant, Angelo talked to Maria during the night on the telephone and professed his undying love for her, claiming that he had settled his debt and constantly reiterating that nobody was going to keep them apart, that he loved her and he didn't care what anybody said. He was going to see her every chance he had. According to informant, they arranged to get together the following day. End quote. So if you're keeping score, Angelo sold part of his stake in the California Cheese Company, the business handed down to him by his father and also co-run by his brother when he failed to pay a debt of roughly $2,000 to $3,000, the equivalent of $20,000 to $30,000 today. And there were a few reports gleaned by the FBI that indicate either Angelo was just flat broke or he kept all of his personal money, which is certainly plausible, not in a bank account, in order to keep it away from the eyes of the IRS. And not only that, despite being chastised by many in his crime family and risking major issues due to his wife's connections to Philly, he was open and defiant about staying together with his girlfriend, one Maria Mack. Again, this behavior gets you taken for a ride or dumped into the ocean in nearly every other crime family, but because he was with the Cerritos, Angela was just a man in love, and he didn't care who knew it, despite the fact that the FBI were actually trying to pin a charge of violating the White Slave Traffic Act, aka the Mann Act, on him for his trip to Arizona with Mac, which is crazy in and of itself. Now, Marino around this time would be interviewed 
not good by the FBI, which would put him in even more hot water and leave his family boss pretty exasperated. Quote, SFT-11 on November 15, 1962, advised that Angelo Marino had discussed his interview with the FBI, indicating that he had been questioned regarding his trip to Arizona with his girlfriend Maria when they stayed at the motel together. Informant advised that Marino did not know where the FBI had gotten the idea that he had crossed state lines for immoral purposes. He commented, according to informant, Marino concluded that this matter did not appear to be a substantial violation of the law, but would be embarrassing to him personally. SFT-1 on November 19, 1962, advised that he had learned that Angelo Marino was interviewed by FBI agents that day and that Joseph Cerrito had been told of this interview and the questioning regarding subjects travel with Maria Mack to Arizona and a possible violation of the White Slave Traffic Act. According to informant, Cerrito made the comment he got himself into it, let him get himself out of it. Informant advised that he had learned that Cerrito frowned upon Marino's philandering activities, end quote. Uh, and I promise I'll stop reporting on this affair, but I can say it was not just taking a toll on his marriage, but was taking a toll on Angelo's entire reputation in the underworld to the point where it seemed fairly toxic if the reports are to be believed. Now, here's a report from October of 1963 indicating the affair had continued for well over a year after Angelo had risked a beating and then finally came to a head. Quote, SFT2 advised that on October 7th, 1963, Precious Maggio, wife of Angelo Marino, caught her husband talking on the telephone at approximately 4.30 a.m. October 7th, 1963 with his girlfriend, Maria Mack. Marino had apparently just been out with Maria Mack and was recounting their experiences. As a result, Precious Marino confronted Angelo with the information she had overheard on the telephone and threw he and his clothes out of the house. On October 9, 1963, SFT2 advised that Salvatore Marino, Angelo's father, was extremely upset over the situation existing between his son and his wife and was extremely disgusted with his son Angelo. Angelo Marino had requested intermediaries contact his wife on October 9, 1963 to determine if he could return home. Information was received on October 16, 1963, indicating Precious Marino was in the Sierra Hospital suffering from a nervous breakdown and that on October 21, 1963, Angelo Marino was confined at the hospital where he was undergoing psychiatric treatment. Angelo entered the hospital on October 18, 1963, and his wife, Precious, was discharged on October 19, 1963, and returned to her home. Shortly thereafter, Angelo and Precious Marino were reconciled. It is noted, however, that he continues to have clandestine dates with Maria Mack. End quote. All I can say is good lord. Outside of the marital issues, which were bringing heat, like I said, and, you know, risk in many different ways, the revelation that Angelo had sought a psychiatrist, a big no-no in that life, was pretty stunning. And again, I'm shocked that action wasn't taken to discipline or whack him, to be honest. But with the Cerrito family, you know, the beat goes on. And reports in 1964 
would actually indicate that Angelo and Maria Mack were pregnant and would eventually have a child. And his wife, Precious, was not just threatening to leave him, but threatening to kill them both. <laughs> oh, good God. Uh, so a lot of very Jerry Springer-esque things were going on at this time in Angelo's life. All of this was affecting Angelo's standing in the underworld. There's, there's almost no way that this kind of volatility couldn't. And it does appear that Precious's brothers and members of his own LCN family did eventually attempt to straighten Angelo out, which I'm sure meant something painful. And according to the reports I found, the only reason that Marino wasn't killed was due to the intervention of a man named John Miseraca, influential member of the Colombo family of New York and brother of San Jose soldier Pete Miseraca. Otherwise, Marino, as I said, probably would have been toast. While affairs are pretty commonplace in the life and having a woman on the side is the norm, there does seem to be a bit of a double standard when it comes to publicly embarrassing your wife and family. And I'd say that Marino was pretty clearly stepping over the line here in terms of his lack of discretion and not just embarrassing his wife, but embarrassing his Elsian family and even the Philadelphia family uh, by extension. Speaking of Pete, as if there wasn't enough drama going on, uh, Pete Misaraka that is, around this time the Cerrito family began to have an issue with Pete Misaraka, soldier and brother of the influential Colombo capo John Misaraka, which I referenced passingly in part one. Marino was allegedly a participant in an incident in which Misaraka made threats against fellow members of the organization, but ultimately made peace after the organization had threatened to silence him permanently. Again, the threat, but they didn't actually do anything. Additionally, Angelo was given and failed to execute a contract handed to him by Joe Cerrito to take out a man named Giuseppe Palameni, who was instead arrested by the INS and determined to be wanted in Italy, as well as by the INS since 1955, ultimately serving prison time instead of getting whacked by Marino and the Cerrito family. Quote, on November 5th, 1962, SFT-1 advised that information had come to him indicating Angelo Marino, capo of San Jose, California group, had the contract to hit, kill, a person by the name of John Repetti, or Repepi, who managed a pizza parlor in Vacaville, California, known as Pietro's Pizza Parlor No. 2. The man reportedly shot a friend, member of La Cosa Nostra, in Italy over six years ago and shortly thereafter came to the United States where he jumped ship. He had moved from place to place in the United States and finally located in Bakerville where he had been for about nine months. According to SFT1, this individual was not himself a friend but had been identified as the person who shot a friend in Italy, which information allegedly came from members of the organization in the East. SFT1 further advised Frank Source, Dominic Anzalone, both of San Jose, Joseph Genovese of Stockton, California, Salvatore Costanza, and Alex Camerata of Martinez, California area, had all been to Vacaville in an effort to determine the activities and habits of Repepi. SFT1 stated that Repepi was wanted by authorities in Italy, but that the organization wanted to get him first. Angelo Marino reportedly made the statement that the contract was open on Repepi, that anyone who carried out the contract would be well rewarded by the organization in the East. 
end quote. However, shortly after the contract was issued, John Rapepi would be sought out and arrested by the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service, at which point Marino issued orders to make no more contacts in Vacaville, California, effectively terminating the contract. So it would ultimately be another case of a contract that was handed down that failed to be executed upon by Marino and other members of the family. As a mafia family, this is not a sign of prestige, and the Cerritos by this point were pretty quickly losing their prestige within the national Cosa Nostra underworld. Jumping ahead a little bit, I would find evidence of yet another failed contract handed down in February of 1967 on a man named Joe Valencia, an operator of a local catering service in Berkeley, California, who was $4,000 in debt to the mob, though that contract would ultimately be canceled as well. Again, this was typical as the Cerrito family rarely resorted to any level of violence during the Cerrito area, and while I'm certainly not trying to glorify murdering people, this type of thing was pretty commonplace for this particular family. They didn't have any bite, nor did they seem to inspire a great deal of fear. In fact, in this FBI memo, it appears that members of the family approached Valencia's aunt, and she more or less told them to shove off. Pretty, pretty bold lady. Uh, by the spring of 1963, jumping back, Marino was being investigated by the Internal Revenue Service and expected to be charged with fraud, and he expected to do some jail time after it was discovered that he'd been bootlegging California Cheese Company products through his partner Ray Biley's Alum Rock Cheese Company. As you might expect, this of course drew the ire of Cerrito, who was reputed to have called Marino stupid because he knew he was being watched closely. But it's not all bad with Marino, as he did eventually, as we know, supposedly rise to boss, which meant that he had to have, like, some good and respectful qualities, right? I did find an interesting note that put Marino in a position of prominence with respect to union organizing in the San Jose area, which would be something that would definitely bring money in for the family, but had him in contact also with Eugene Buffalino, the lawyer out of Detroit, uh, who was, of course, you know, connected directly the cousin of Russell Buffalino, as well as Angelo Bruno, the Don of Philadelphia. We know that Marino had those connections back. The goal was to get Sal Costanza, another member, into the new General Motors plant as a union organizer. Now, by the mid-60s, at this point, Marino was shown to have at least a passing relationship with a man who would become very important in the Los Angeles crime family and would eventually become a major government informant, major rat, Aladina Jimmy the Weasel Fradiano. He would also show up in paperwork meeting with both Sal and Frank Bompensero of the Los Angeles family on a pretty regular basis as well. So again, they had a relationship too. Uh, so it's clear that while he wasn't particularly on the ball, he did have some relationships with key figures outside of San Jose, especially when you include the Bonanno connection and his Pittsburgh and Philadelphia roots. It's also around this time that the heat from the FBI really begins to ratchet up on the family, with San Jose members openly expressing pretty significant concerns about the level of law enforcement heat on them at the time, uh, and even going so far as to suspend meetings of the, uh, of the group. Now, Marino would face an IRS case in 1967 that would ultimately be dismissed. 
What's interesting about this report is that it suggests that Marino is a former Capo de Decina, indicating that he may have been demoted around this time in 1967, which would make a lot of sense given his conduct. Reports from 1969 would actually, I believe, confirm this fact, the, the demotion. In 1968, Angelo Marino would actually have some personal health issues, suffering a heart attack and having to actually be removed from a plane flight he was taking and thus spending a good deal of time out of commission in the hospital. There was some concern amongst his family members that he may soon suffer <laughs> from a mental breakdown. Uh, and, you know, obviously that was given all of the stress that he was probably bringing on himself. The FBI had also noted that by this time, he had finally, finally divorced his wife, Precious Marino, who actually moved back to Philadelphia with the couple's daughter. There were also discussions that the Marinos may have been attempting to sell the California Cheese Company at the time, though it would ultimately remain in the family for many more years. Marino would allegedly remarry years later, not to Maria Mack, but to a woman named Marianne. It's also around this time in 1968 that the family was dealing with the fallout of the Life magazine article, which would mention Marino as the cheese man on the mafia, and the subsequent lawsuit filed by Cerrito would get the family a great deal of unwanted publicity. Relating to that article on lawsuit, a conversation was picked up and recorded in a 1968 FBI field report that I alluded to in the part one episode featuring none other than Tampa boss Santo Traficante, who had been visiting in San Diego and had a very pointed conversation about Angelo Marino with this very highly placed informant. It also sheds a little more light on the demotion of Angelo's father from Capo and Angelo's subsequent promotion in the early 1960s. And not only that, it corroborates the stories of Angelo dragging his feet on several murder contracts. Quote, the San Diego office by communication dated April 10th, 1968, advised that SFT5 furnished the following information concerning his visit with Santo Traficante Jr., LCN boss of Florida, when they met in San Diego on April 1st, 1968. Santo questioned the informant about the Life magazine article regarding the San Jose family. The informant told him it was all true. He told Santo that at the time, he was a close friend of LCN Capo, Angelo Marino of San Jose. He described how Angelo's father, Salvatore Marino, had been a capo in the San Jose family and that several years ago, the San Jose LCN boss, Joe Cerrito, wanted Sal to step down. Sal contacted the informant to get his opinion, and the informant advised him that since Cerrito felt that way, he should step down, but only on the condition that his son, Angelo, take his place. Cerrito agreed to this, and this is how Angelo became capo. Santo described Angelo as a very weak man who could not kill anyone if his own life depended on it, and that he had no talent whatsoever for LCN racket activity, that most of his adult life was spent chasing women and gambling while his father had to run the California Cheese Company. Informant told Santo that around 1963 or 1964, 
Angelo came to contact the informant and told him that he had received an execution contract and sought advice. The informant advised that Angelo wanted him to help, but he told Angelo that he was still on parole and could have nothing to do with it. He told Angelo to take a couple of trusted soldiers and carry out the contract. Sometime later, he heard that the intended victim was picked up by Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, for deportation, and he always suspected Angelo, instead of killing the intended victim, made an anonymous call to have him picked up rather than kill him. He stated that from questioning Angelo at the time, he learned Angelo had even talked to the intended victim while the contract was in force, and he also learned the contract had been given Angelo by the LCN San Jose boss, Joe Cerrito. End quote. So this entire conversation is a pretty damning indictment of Marino, and just for clarity's sake, the contract being referred to was either the contract on Giuseppe Palameni or the contract on John Rapepi, both of whom would be arrested by the INS before being whacked. And I promise you I have no personal vendetta against Angelo Marino or the Marino family in any way, shape, or form. I'm, I'm not trying to slant this story in any particular way. It's just that most of the reports relating to him do not tend to indicate that he really had his act together at this time or ever, nor do they indicate that he was well-organized by and well-regarded by his contemporaries, despite having a lot of really, uh, really solid connections in the underworld. Speaking of connections, I'd be remiss to not cover one of those, that being Marino's relationship with a man named Joseph Aliotto. I touched on Aliotto in part one, but for those that don't know, Aliotto was a politician in the 1960s and 1970s and ended up being the 36th mayor of San Francisco from 1968 to 1976. Prior to his mayorship, he had a law practice focused on antitrust cases. And after he you know, was done being the mayor of San Francisco in 1980, he most famously represented Al Davis of the Oakland Raiders in a landmark antitrust case entitled Los Angeles Coliseum Commission vs. the NFL. As it turns out, Angelo Marino, now going back to the Aliotto connection, was being investigated for tax evasion in the early to mid-1960s, and he would leverage his relationship with Aliotto to wiggle out of it, allegedly. In the early part of 1963, Marino would make contact with Aliotto as well as an attorney attached to Aliotto's office. Joseph Aliotto's son, Joe Aliotto Jr., would end up being the lawyer representing Marino in his tax case. Now, fast forwarding to January of 1965, Marino, who was around 40 years old at this time, would be arrested finally, and charged with evading $11,314 in personal income tax and $19,095 in corporate income taxes from the years of 1961 and 1962. The indictment stated that Marino's income in 1961 was $29,831 and not $17,264 as Marino had reported. And then in 1962, the indictment contended that Marino actually earned $33,906, but only reported an income of 
and $34. Now, of course, in today's money, this sounds, you know, puny by comparison, but remember, this is the, the early 1960s. Uh, and you could, you know, you could make 15 or $33,000 in a year and be pretty, pretty well off. So a uh, big difference between that value of that money then and the value of that money today. Altogether, Assistant U.S. Attorney James Brosnahan Jr. would state that Marino faced a bill of $178,220 for back taxes and penalties in addition to criminal prosecution. Now, for those doing the math at home, the government alleged that Marino had evaded $30,000 for, or I'm sorry, $30,409 in taxes, the equivalent of roughly $297,534 in today's money, but expected him to pay a total of $178,220, right? Uh, which would be about $1.7 million in today's money. Now, doesn't that sound, it sounds a little out of order to me, but then again, uh, knowing that Marino was a mob figure, I think they were trying to hit him where it hurt, his wallet. This undoubtedly made him sweat, as I think honestly anyone would in that situation when the government was really trying to trying to nail you for that much money. Ultimately and unsurprisingly, Marino's income tax case would be dismissed on May 22nd, 1967, when it was discovered that the FBI had used bugging devices to obtain the key evidence against Marino. So, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> uh, so a bit of good luck for Angelo as he was able to skate off scot-free. Now, just four months later, FBI reports suggest that in 1967, Marino paid $3,000 to the mayoral campaign of Alioto. Now, that's not a ton of money, $27,000 in today's money, but it's not nothing. Now, the optics of this appears to be a case of if you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Now, I don't have any evidence other than Alioto's son was Marino's lawyer, and, and there are records that indicate Marino made contact with Alioto's office while his case was being investigated, uh, but I don't have any records that directly corroborate that Alioto helped in any way in this case, right? But a guy can speculate, of course. By the end of the 1960s, things appeared to be back on track for Marino, although Angelo's father, Salvatore, would end up in the hospital and Angelo would more or less uh, resume, he had been deferring a lot of his responsibilities, would resume really, you know, taking the lead and running the operations again of the California Cheese Company. But things were about to heat up regarding the aforementioned Joseph Alioto and Angelo's connection to Mayor Alioto. Though Alioto would long deny ties to organized crime over the course of his career, a damning article in Look Magazine in 1969 would connect Alioto directly to Angelo Marino, dubbing Marino a significant member of the mafia on the West Coast. The article would connect Alioto with other mobsters as well, including James Lanza, boss of San Francisco, and Aladina, Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano, high-ranking member of the Los Angeles family, and, as I said before, infamous mob rat. Reports would later come out that the FBI had been the primary source feeding Look the information for the article. 
And in addition to that, FBI reports would allege that Aliotto's ties to the Mafia were even deeper than that. Like Marino, the Mafia appeared to be in Aliotto's blood. You see, Joseph Aliotto's father was a man named Giuseppe Aliotto, who was in fact the cousin of a man named John Aliotto. John Aliotto was famous for one reason. He was the LCN boss of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, before ultimately relinquishing the family to his son-in-law, none other than Frank Balistrieri, right? So, small, small world. Aliotto, as well as Marino, would eventually sue Look Magazine for libel, as the case had both men in the news quite a lot in the early 1970s, which isn't good if you're a public official or a member of the Mafia. The Look Magazine trials would become one of the longest and most bitterly contested libel suits of all time, with Look Magazine spending over a million dollars in the uh, late 60s and early 70s defending itself, though Aliotto ultimately would go on to win, being awarded $350,000 in libel judgment in May of 1977. As for Angelo Marino's portion of the suit, his case ultimately would really go nowhere. This suit was, was actually very similar, both in terms of uh, timing uh, as well as you know what was actually being alleged in the suit to the one that Joe Cerrito filed against Life magazine, except for the fact that Aliotto actually came out as a winner, despite what I believe to be his very, very real ties to the mob. Now, resetting on Marino. By this time in the early 1970s, Angelo had previously been a capo with but was in the position of soldier after his demotion, and the family's capos were Emmanuel Manifilia and Philip Marici, while the underboss position was left vacant for the time being after the death of Charles Carbone in the late 60s. According to a 1969 legal deposition, the size of the family at this time was in the mid-20s in terms of total number of made members. Save for the Look Magazine issue and the Life Magazine suit, Marino and the entire Cerrito family rolled into the 1970s fairly uneventfully in terms of other family business. However, by 1973, Angelo would be recorded as openly expressing great discontent for the family's leadership. Then in 1974, Angelo's personal family would take a blow as his father, Salvatore, the man who'd brought him into the Mafia and set him up to run the California Cheese Company, would pass away at the age of 74. Although they didn't seem to have a great relationship, uh, there were you know, constant reports of you know, infighting and bickering between the two, especially in the 60s, maybe not so much before. But the fact remains that Salvatore was a very important person in who Angelo Marino ultimately became. Uh, and it's a man's it's a man's father, right? Big influence on his life. By 1975, members of the family who had long been tired of Joseph Cerrito's leadership would attempt to get him to step down as boss, efforts to which he was resistant. There would even be reports that old snake in the grass, right? Joe Bonanno and a Chicago contingent were attempting to take over the San Jose family 
which of course was a concern to Joe Cerrito as well as incumbent San Jose family members. They did not want outside influence infiltrating their family. There were also articles a few years later while Cerrito was still alive laying out just how dissatisfied family members and most specifically Angelo Marino were with Cerrito's leadership and comparing the group to Jimmy Breslin's gang that couldn't shoot straight. And I actually think that this uh, this comparison actually fits this group more than the gallows for sure. And. I will say this all happened all while Cerrito was still alive, mind you. Uh, and here's a small snippet from the article, which of course criticized Cerrito. And I think this really kind of something, sums things up. Quote, For at least 15 years, Angelo Marino has been dissatisfied with the way the mafia has been run in the Santa Clara Valley. In fact, Marino's dissatisfaction with the stewardship of Joseph Cerrito, longtime head of the San Jose Mafia family, has at times bordered on open contempt. As Marino saw things, Cerrito cost the family both money and Mafia respect by holding himself and his men aloof from common street rackets. Members of Cerrito's family have confined themselves, according to law enforcement officials, largely to such legitimate ventures as auto agencies, orchards, bakeries, dry cleaning plants, and restaurants, all of which irked Marino, who reportedly yearned for more traditional mafia operations, including gambling, loan sharking, and extortion. End quote. As I mentioned in part one, given everything that was going on and the level of contempt likely from more than just Marino, I'm both really surprised that an assassination attempt wasn't made and equally unsurprised because by this point, you really can see the family under Cerrito had just a really significant aversion to committing public crimes or even private crimes. And though they were mafia, they just didn't seem to have the same level of aggression as other families around the country. And quite honestly, I'm not really sure why, save for the fear of law enforcement and going to jail was greater than the, you know, than of course the, the allure of the, the street and the money to be made there for the upper echelon leadership. But I think one thing is clear. Joe Cerrito and Angelo Marino were not what I'd call close friends. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to say that they weren't friends. They knew each other a long time. But you can't be that close and be so, so critical of somebody who's supposedly your, your good friend, right? And I think it's clear that they had significantly differing philosophies on how things should be run. Uh, I think Marino wanted things to be run like a real mafia family, old school. And I think Cerrito was a little bit different and wanted the family to be legitimate. Now, not only that, Marino was bold enough to talk about his differences with the boss publicly, which again, in other families would not have happened without Marino literally getting his head put on a spike, so to speak. But you'll see the differences uh, in philosophy. They'll show themselves pretty quickly. And the Marinos would show that they did, despite all of those reports of failed hits in the 1960s, have a violent streak. And they were getting bolder in their actions, that being Angelo Marino and his son, who by this point in time was an adult, 
Salvatore Joseph Marino, who, believe me, we'll discuss <laughs> very soon in this episode. Now, in fact, a heavily redacted report dated from January of 1975 would suggest that a man who had visited the California Cheese Company would be threatened, reporting that the Marino family was going to get him, with the report going on to suggest that the man had literally been held with a knife at his throat and a gun at his head and told to sign over his truck, house, and all belongings. According to other reports around the incident, the beating stemmed from the discovery that one of the Marino's partners had been selling watered-down milk to the California Cheese Company. Big, big problem. Uh, a slightly less redacted version of the report detailed this incident in particular. Quote, the information is as follows. one fifteen seventy five Wednesday, Mr. Blank advised that the subject, Blank, California Cheese Company in San Jose, and that after Blank was invited to the office of Angelo Marino, the owner of California Cheese Company. According to Mr. Blank, when Mr. Blank arrived at Mr. Marino's office, there were three subjects present. The subjects being Angelo Marino, Salvatore Marino, and Blank from the Luis Transportation Company. According to Mr. Blank, he was told by Blank that upon the arrival of Marino's office, the subject Blank was grabbed around the neck by Salvatore Marino and a knife was held to his throat and further advised that Angelo Marino struck the subject several times about the face with a pistol, unknown maker caliber. According to Mr. Blank, he was told by Subject Blank that the meeting took approximately 10 minutes. All this time, the subject held a knife to his throat and the other subject beat him with the pistol. After the beating was inflicted upon him, Mr. Blank was forced to sign a statement made out by the California Cheese Company, and this statement was to the effect that he, Blank Cheese Plant, Blank Mr. Blank, further advised that he was told by Blank that the subject Angelo Marino told him that he would later Blank further. According to Mr. Blank, the subject Blank was present during the time that the beating was given to Blank and had witnessed the whole transaction. Mr. Blank advised that he had been in contact with Mr. Blank several times since the date of the beating and attempted to get him to report the incident. However, he indicated that the subject Blank, owners of the California Cheese Company, would attempt to do him some type of bodily harm again. Blank, however, did tell Mr. Blank that he had gone to the doctor in San Jose for treatment of the injuries inflicted by the beating with the pistol and also had apparently some type of knife wound on his throat area, end quote. So one thing was very clear to me and will become even more clear by the end of this episode. Say what you will about Angelo Marino, who, as I presented, has really what I can only call a very uneven career in the mob to this point. However, Angelo's son, Sal Marino, seemed to be quite the enforcer and not a guy to fuck around with under any circumstances whatsoever. At least that's the impression I've gotten in my research. And again, you're going to understand why in just a minute. There were several instances in the mid-1970s where reports would indicate that the Marinos, father and son, were beginning to shake down other companies, specifically in the cheese and dairy business, with reports of Sal Marino shooting up apartments and maybe even being involved in a murder in 1974 prior to being sent to Italy while the heat cooled off. 
In fact, some sources would suggest that at one point, the Marinos controlled 85% of California's mozzarella and ricotta business. And as I said before, for whatever reason, the mafia across the country, especially in the hubs of, of California, Philadelphia, and Colorado, huge into the cheese business, something you would never, never expect. Now, back to Joseph Cerrito. Throughout the 1970s, Joe Cerrito would suffer many health ailments. Uh, he and Angelo definitely shared, shared that. Uh, and Joe Cerrito actually would suffer a heart attack in December of 1975, though he'd survive. Uh, it's also, like I just said, worth noting that in the mid-1970s, Angelo Marino would also have similar heart-related issues. Now, Joseph Cerrito would ultimately pass away on September 7th, 1978. Again, as I covered in part one, longtime family boss Joe Cerrito's funeral ended up being somewhat of a spectacle with Angelo Marino inadvertently or on purpose taking center stage. Uh, very uh, cliche almost with respect to how he behaved. According to the San Francisco Examiner, the funeral was like Cerrito's life, part respectable, part gutter. Quote, Grief, anger, as Cerrito laid to rest. Los Gatos, the funeral of Joseph X. Cerrito was like his life, part respectable, part gutter. There is Los Gatos town councilman Tom Ferrito serving as a pallbearer for the longtime local resident and businessman. And there was Cerrito's fellow businessman, California Cheese Company President Angelo Marino, said to be as deeply involved as he in mafia activities. Marino was angrily shouting at a photographer, introducing upon his mourning, Your mother is a whore. Cerrito, dead of natural causes at age 67, had just been carried into St. Mary's Catholic Church in a solid bronze casket. His wife Elizabeth followed the casket, as did his three sons and their children. About 250 of his relatives and friends came to mourn his passing. From the four dozen roses in the casket spray to the graveside floral array at Santa Clara Mission Cemetery, there was no sign of ostentation. Cadillacs were outnumbered by Datsuns 12 to 11, and there was only one Rolls-Royce. A gray-haired man in his early 60s, citing a photographer he mistook for a federal officer, thrust his chest in front of the lens and before a friend could intervene said, You want to eat that damned camera for dinner? End quote. After Cerrito's death, the FBI would suggest that operations of the family were being directly controlled by the family's longtime underboss, Emmanuel Manifilia. And this would make sense, as Filia served as Cerrito's right-hand man for years. He was Cerrito's brother-in-law. And if I had to make a comparison, now this is going to belie the fact that I'm a major nerd, Manny Filia, to me, was the equivalent to Samwise Gamgee to Cerritos Frodo Baggins, if you will, right? Everybody who has seen The Lord of the Rings knows that while Frodo is, is, is sort of the front guy from a hero standpoint, Sam is the hero of the, entire, of the entire series and the guy Frodo really leans on for the whole, for the whole thing. So again... Big nerd here, uh, but Manny Filia to me was a lot like Sam in that he was Cerrito's rock. However, 
many other sources, including Wikipedia and sites like the Mob Museum and AmericanMafia.com, allege that Angelo Marino took over as boss of the family in 1978 after Cerrito's passing. Now, quite frankly, most of the public sites who haven't done the deep research will tend to lean this way with respect to Marino taking over. However, I want to be very clear on this point. Angelo Marino being linked to the boss position in San Jose in 1978 after Cerrito's death was not something I was able to confirm with any FBI paperwork. It just wasn't that clear, nor the, did I see anything that ever labeled him as boss. The only reference to the change in leadership indicated that Felia, not Marino, actually took things over. Now, who, quite honestly, you know, who who knows? But based on what I know about this family, and I, I, I think I tend to believe that Felia would be the one that took over if I had to put money on it. Though Marino, for good reason, uh, I think he probably got the most press besides Cerrito out of any of the family members. That being said, uh, personal conversations with people local to the area do confirm that the Marinos were definitely to be feared whether Angelo was truly the boss or not. They earned their reputation. And again, you're going to see why in just a minute. And while I'm not one to promote a Reddit thread as fact, there was a pretty good thread about this very subject a few months ago that I think is worth quoting and that really actually aligns to what I felt like I found in my research as well. So I just wanted to bring it in here as a, as a good conversation piece. Quote, By 1975, a strong desire among the San Jose membership for an election to name a new boss. Cerrito had successfully used the fear of law enforcement surveillance to forestall any large-scale meetings of the crime family's members for several years by this point, although he was certain that if an election were to occur, he would be ousted. Capo Manifilia was named his most likely successor, and Cerrito confided to James Lanza, boss of San Francisco, in 1975 that he intended to resign before any election was ever held to save himself the embarrassment of being removed. We have no evidence, however, that he did in fact step down before his death in 1978, and he may have continued to successfully stall any election efforts. Emmanuel Felia, 1978 to... Who knows? <laughs> Obviously, Wikipedia isn't a good source, but it states after Cerrito's death, Capo Angelo Marino became the new boss. I'd make the case, however, that Capo Emanuel Filia succeeded instead. A 1978 report on organized crime in California gives conflicting statements on Angelo's position. On his own entry, he is described as a high-level member of the San Jose Mafia for many years, but in another entry on one of his associates, it states, Angelo Marino, named by the U.S. Congressional Record as the leader of the San Jose Mafia. Now, the report was released in May of that year, while Joe Cerrito did not die until September. This means that either Cerrito was in fact ousted before his death and that Marino was elected in his place, or the report itself was wrong to label him as the leader and instead should have called him one of the leaders of the San Jose Mafia. It seems that the Congressional Record report that they were referring to is in fact from 1969, which they'd already referenced and names him as a captain in the San Jose Mafia rather than outright boss. 
If an election had been held before Cerrito's death in 1978, it was instead Felia that should have succeeded. He had been acknowledged by informants and the FBI as the second highest ranking member behind Cerrito since as early as 1967, and indeed just three years before the latter's death was seen as the next in line to replace him, also having the backing of the nearby San Francisco family. If an election had been held after Cerrito's death, it's even more certain Angelo would not have been selected as boss. He was at the time facing enormous publicity from a failed double murder in 1977 that would last right up until his death in 1983 and beyond. The low-key San Jose membership would have been very unlikely to elect him as boss in 1978 because of this. What we do know for certain, at least according to police sources, was that Manny Filio was boss by 1987, a special hearing of the United States government 25 years after Mafia and former Joe Valachi, identifying him as such. End quote. In addition to that really great thought-provoking post, obviously the, the user has a, a pretty extensive knowledge of the San Jose family, there are some really great comments in the thread, which I will link to on my website, but that, again, I thought really worth uh, bears repeating. Uh, however, I'll quickly share what I thought was the best comment out of the bunch, uh, which, again, I wouldn't do unless that comment and information wasn't well sourced, right? I wouldn't just put it out here, but I think it's really, really good, and there is some validity to the theory that's being discussed. Quote, there isn't actually any proof Felia succeeded Cerrito. When you reference the 25 years after Valachi report, it should be noted that there is no boss listed for San Jose in their chart. On the page directly addressing the San Jose leadership, Felia is listed as the underboss, though the digitized version is not in great shape. The text under his name is much longer than that of James Lanza and Joe Bonanno, both known as the leaders of their families, not that Tucson was a family. That is backed up by a 1985 FBI membership list where Felia is listed as the underboss and the boss position is vacant. It's more likely that Marino took over from Cerrito given that he and his associates were some of the last active remnants of the family by this point. Joseph Piazza, who you reference later, was actually an inducted member of the San Jose family, see 1985 list, and given his association with Marino, it is very likely he was brought into the family by him. End quote. So truly, nobody, including the government, really knew who officially took the family over, except for those people in the family in a position to know that information. Maybe they chose to let the family die out naturally, and maybe they kept it going for a few more years. And I think the research is going to show that they kept it going for a few more years, but it didn't go on forever. Now, even if Angelo Marino did take over as boss, his longevity was on life support from the very beginning, even before the beginning, due to an issue of his own making. In fact, his reign was really over before it started, if it started in the first place, and this would tend to fit his modus operandi. I mean, it's just typical.
in October of 1977, less than a year before supposedly taking over as the family's new boss, Angelo Marino and his son Salvatore Marino would be involved in a situation with a 24-year-old man named Peter Catelli and his father, 50-year-old Orlando Catelli. And quite honestly, with the exception of maybe Joe Cerrito's attendance at the Appalachian mob meeting or the Life magazine lawsuit in the late 1960s, this incident was likely the biggest event in the history of the San Jose Cosa Nostra family. The reason for that is really quite simple. This group was not historically known as a group that committed violence. But on October 12th, 1977, that changed. A report in the Oakland Tribune would describe the grisly incident. Quote, arrest in trunk slaying. San Jose police have arrested Salvatore Joseph Marino Jr. on a murder charge in connection with the shooting of a Concord real estate man and his son who were found locked in an automobile trunk in San Francisco's Mission District last night. The son died, but the father pounded on the trunk lid and called for help until police came and then he named Marino as the man who shot them. Police said the victims were beaten and shot in a house trailer at the California Cheese Company at 1451 Sunny Court in San Jose, a company owned by the Marino family, members of which figured prominently in the testimony in former San Francisco Mayor Joseph L. Aliotto's libel lawsuit against Look Magazine for writing that Aliotto was connected to the Mafia. The victims were identified by police as Orlando J. Catelli, 50, and his son, Peter Catelli, 24, both of 945 Bancroft Road, apartment 116A in Concord. They were discovered at about 9.30 p.m. yesterday, locked in the trunk of the father's 1975 white Cadillac DeVille, which was parked at the curb at Garfield Park in the 2900 block of Harrison Street. James McIntyre of 2905 Harrison Street called police when he heard loud thumping from inside the car trunk. Police and firemen pried open the trunk to find Peter Catelli dead from a gunshot wound in the back of his head. Orlando Catelli had also been shot in the head, but he was alive and talking. Police official Joe E. Tercy said the elder Catelli talked to him even before the trunk lid was open, asking Tercy to get any kids away from here because my son is dead. Officer Tercy said he yelled that he knew who did it. He said a Marino from a cheese company in San Jose had ordered the execution and that Marino's son pulled the trigger. Both victims were severely beaten, their eyes blackened, their faces lacerated, end quote. The article would go on to say that Orlando Catelli was talking with police in San Francisco General Hospital in fair condition while Angelo Marino was taken to the hospital the following day after suffering a heart attack, though he was in stable condition. Other reports would indicate that the elder Catelli actually not in fair condition, had suffered a skull fracture, right? So a little bit more serious than fair, but he was alive. An autopsy on Peter Catelli would indicate that he had been shot once in the back of the head, the bullet going from left to right. Prior to being shot, he'd been struck on the head, but was alive when he was shot. The autopsy surgeon recovered a jacketed lead bullet, which he said was probably thirty-eight caliber. 
While the motives for the killing were initially unclear, the San Jose News would report that a tipster had said a war was brewing between Angelo Marino and some other guys. A separate article in the San Francisco Examiner the day after the killing gave a description of the Marino family beginning with the youngest Marino, Salvatore, then touching on Angelo's father, who as we know was also named Salvatore, and then finally discussing Angelo himself before turning back to the particulars of the actual homicide. None of it was good publicity for the Marinos or the larger Cerrito family as a whole. Quote, Young Marino was taken into custody as he drove up to the company plant on the frontage road off Highway 101 early today. Police armed with a search warrant had begun searching the premises more than an hour earlier and were still at it shortly before noon. Salvatore Marino, then 72, was a witness in 1970 in former Mayor Joseph Aliotto's $12.5 million libel suit against now-defunct Look magazine, which alleged the former mayor had links to the mafia. He said at the time he had been in the numbers racket in Pennsylvania in the 1930s, but had never been arrested or in a courtroom before in his life. Angelo Marino was also a witness in the Aliotto trial in May 1970. He denied he met with reputed mafia executioner James the Weasel Fratiano in Aliotto's office in 1964, as alleged in the Look article. In an earlier phase of the trial, Angelo Marino took the Fifth Amendment and refused to answer questions relating to his background and whether he was ever a member of La Cosa Nostra or the Mafia. After four trials spanning seven and a half years, Aliotto finally won a judgment against Look for $350,000 plus court costs. The court found he had been the subject of malicious, defamatory statements. Discovery of the attack victims here last night also launched investigations here and in Concord. Local homicide inspectors, however, refused to give more than a bare-bones account. They said passerby heard a pounding on the trunk lid of the blue and white car parked in the 2900 block of Harrison Street in the Garfield Park area about 9.30. I'm hurt! Get me out of here! came a muffled cry. Police were summoned and unable to get the trunk open, they called firemen who pried it up. Inside were Catelli, 48, who had been shot once in the head but was alive and conscious, and his son, Peter, 24, shot once in the back of the ear, who apparently died instantly. The father was taken to San Francisco General Hospital, where he was placed under police protection. Doctors described his condition as serious. Homicide inspector Jeffrey Brosh refused to comment on reports that the elder Catelli told officers he knew who his assailants were. Immediately after the discovery, Concord police went to the Catelli home and placed Catelli's wife under police protection. Brosh also declined to say why police apparently believed the shootings occurred in the San Jose area or to discuss a possible motive. Several items, including a full set of golf clubs, a briefcase, and a leather bag were found in the back seat of the Cadillac. The killing recalled the 1947 murder of mobster Nick Dijon, who was garroted and stuffed in the trunk of a convertible. His body was found two days later in the car parked in the Marina District. Associates, however, recoiled at the idea that Catelli could have been involved in the underworld. 
Ed Zikafus, owner of the Olympia Realty Company of Contra Costa County, from whom Catelli worked as a salesman, described him as steady. He always did good work. He was a super nice, really happy type guy who was always laughing and warming up to people very easily at parties, Zikafus said. He and his wife often bowled with Catelli, and his wife Rose, the realtor said, and Peter joined such a party once a few months ago. Nick Antuna, under whose supervision Catelli worked in Olympia's Concord office, called the victim a great guy, a little straight-laced and conservative even. Just last week, Antuna said, Catelli mentioned that he belonged to the Walnut Creek Elks Lodge and had just joined some sort of American Legion organization. End quote. Now, many of the articles seem to disagree about the older Catelli's age, but that's neither here nor there. The fact remains that he was a, close to 50, right? And again, the fact also remains that the younger Catelli had been brutally slain and both men had been viciously assaulted, presumably by the Marinos. In any event, this murder would shatter both the Catelli family as well as the Marinos. But the question ultimately was, why? Why was a straight-laced and conservative young man dealing with the Marinos in the first place, and what triggered such a violent end? An article in the days after the murder would uncover the motive, and unless you're familiar with this story already, I'm going to guarantee you it's not one you'd expect, given that we're dealing with the mafia here, but with the San Jose mafia, I guess it kind of makes sense. I'm going to, to read a few excerpts from the article revealing the stunning motive. Quote, Peter Catelli was killed and his innocent father seriously wounded because the younger man was trying to extort $100,000 from the president of a San Jose cheese factory, inform law enforcement sources today. Local sources said young Catelli had been demanding money from the elder Marino for more than a week on threats that if it weren't paid, he would import hitmen from the east to blow him away. The elder Marino, the sources continued, got in touch with Orlando Catelli, described as a straight arrow type, and told him what was happening. He suggested that Catelli bring his son to the cheese company office in San Jose for a talk. After that, young Catelli was taken to a house trailer nearby and was shot. His father was brought into the room, shown his dead son, and then shot in the back of the head as he grieved, the sources said. The bullet, however, went under the skin and ranged downward without inflicting brain damage. It did cause heavy bleeding that led the assailants to think the father was dead also. Assuming both men were killed, their assailants loaded them into the trunk of the older Catelli's Cadillac and began driving north. The sources said the plan was to dispose of the bodies in Oakland, but the lead car of at least a two-car caravan took the wrong off-ramp and wound up in the Mission District here, where the Cadillac was abandoned. End quote. The article would report the authorities became aware of the Catellis two or three weeks before the incident and had received reports that they'd made acquaintances with people in San Jose who were quote-unquote mob-connected. There were several other pretty disturbing reports about the younger Catelli potentially making friends and enemies with the wrong sorts of people, being willing to talk with the FBI, and even mentioning that he'd be going to look for some people and settle some debts. That's a quote. 
rumors circulated that the dispute was over a $20,000 debt that Marino owed the younger Catelli, who in turn wanted his money back with significant interest. So from the outside looking in, it appears this young man was playing with fire and ultimately got burned. As for the father, quite honestly, it appears that he was completely innocent and was simply trying to extricate his son from a very bad situation. And when it ultimately went bad and went down, he survived actually by playing dead. As additional reports came out, the story of this murder would get even more twisted. An article in the Concord transcript just a few days after the murder said the following, quote, police reports of Catelli murder allege his life depended on a vote. With just minutes left in his young life, 24-year-old Peter Catelli reportedly lay beaten while his executioners took a vote on whether to blow him away, according to documents released yesterday. Official criminal complaints released by San Jose police say Catelli's alleged killers voted to murder the Concord man. Catelli and his father, Orlando, a real estate salesman in Concord, were found beaten and shot in the trunk of their auto parked in San Francisco Tuesday night. When police pried open the trunk, they found the 49-year-old father still alive with the body of his dead son beside him. The elder Catelli remains in stable condition today in San Francisco General Hospital, where he's being treated for a gunshot wound to the head. San Jose police secured warrants yesterday for the arrest of Thomas Napolitano, Charles Jose Piazza, and Angelo Marino, 53, all of San Jose. Police had arrested Marino's 29-year-old son, Salvatore, Wednesday morning in addition to picking up Napolitano yesterday. The elder remains in a San Jose hospital where he was admitted with a heart attack soon after his son's arrest. Piazza is still at large. All four men were being held or sought for investigation of murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy, according to San Jose Police Sergeant Bob Burroughs. Burroughs would not confirm or deny a newspaper report that a $100,000 extortion plot was involved in the attack. According to the complaint, Peter Catelli was escorted by Napolitano to the San Jose offices of the Marino's California Cheese Company. There, the complaint states he was confronted by the other three men who were armed and was taken to the trailer office on the premises. Catelli was physically assaulted by Salvatore and Angelo Marino, the complaint alleges. Then the report suggests Angelo did request the vote of all to decide Catelli's fate. Salvatore Marino and Napolitano cast ballots to blow him away, the complaint says. It was not clear if or how Piazza and Angelo Marino voted. End quote. All I have to say is, dear God, <laughs> that is both heartless and brutal if it is indeed true. And I do believe that it is, especially with the fact that in talking with people from the area, the sheer brutality is still remembered and tends to lean people towards staying silent about such things, even to this day. It's crazy. Not only that, but this was a serious breach of the, the protocol of the Cerrito crime family, which in the past had such a great aversion to organized crime that they either avoided it altogether or any acts of criminality had to go through the boss first. They had to be approved. Now, given that this is less than a year before the death of Cerrito, who was by this point in time, like he was in bad 
bad health, right? So maybe he wasn't in a position to say no. Uh, and his hold on the family was really weak at best. I could see why Angelo Marino and son might be just brash enough to do something like this. Now, it's either that or Cerrito, Filia, and the rest of the, the family leadership knew and approved of such an action, which honestly I would find hard to believe if that were true. Now, my guess is that Filia, if he were the boss, more than likely was 100% fine with Marino taking the heat <laughs> in any situation and being the lightning rod from the trial while he himself stayed in the shadows. However, that's just speculation on my part. I don't know if anybody outside of the Marinos knew that this was happening. This may have been just a straight-up unsanctioned hit. While I won't get into the blow-by-blow -blow of the trial, due to the mafia implications, there obviously was a lot of publicity around the murder trial, with the media even referring to Marino as the Cheese King and Marino claiming, of all things, self-defense. And as a result, the trial would actually be moved from San Jose to Los Angeles. And of course, like before the trial was moved, there are reports that show Marino being very, very upset at the proposition of the trial taking place in San Jose, where he didn't think he was going to get a fair shake. Orlando Catelli, obviously this trial's star witness, would recount how he was shot as he prayed over his dead son's body, saying how he was asked to kill his own son, to which he obviously refused before watching in horror as the events unfolded leading to the demise of his son. Just awful stuff. The tale, uh, that being Orlando Catelli's tale, was truly harrowing and shows what sinister individuals the Marinos appeared to be in this case. Quote, Key witness testifies in Cheese King trial. Los Angeles. The key witness in a reputed mafia figure's trial told a harrowing tale of murder in a cheese factory, recounting how he was shot as he prayed over his dead son's body. Orlando Catelli, who is under federal guard because his life is presumed to be in danger, was to continue his testimony today. Catelli, 50, recalled Wednesday the murder of his son Peter, 24, in a dispute with Cheese King, Angelo Marino, and a group of associates who took a vote on the murder. Catelli glared across the courtroom at Marino, 55, a reputed mafia leader in the San Jose area. The witness told how Marino confronted Peter Catelli on October 11, 1977, and spoke of killing. The son had sent a letter to Marino allegedly attempting to extort $100,000 and threatening Marino's family. At Marino's Cheese Factory, Catelli said he was asked to kill his own son but refused, and then watched Marino's son Salvatore, 30, pistol whip and kick Peter Catelli. When he tried to help, the father said he was threatened with guns turned on him by Marino and co-defendant Charles J. Piazza, also a reputed mafia figure. As the attack on Peter continued, Catelli said Marino asked for a vote on his fate, and Salvatore Marino was the first to say, blow him away. Catelli said he was then taken to another room where Piazza said he was going to scare the kid, Peter, by firing a shot which Peter would think had hit his father. He watched as Piazza fired the fake shot into a mozzarella cheese box. Then Angelo came out, Catelli recalled. He says, Doc, I'm sorry. Your son went for the gun and Sal had to shoot him. It was an accident. I was stunned, said Catelli. I didn't say anything. Then he said, what are we going to do? 
I says, Mr. Marino, give me a gun. Take the bullets out of it. I'll put my fingerprints on it. Take my son's body to the police and tell them I killed him. At that point, he said a door opened. Marino pointed to Peter's body and said, there's your son. Get him out of here. It was then, Catelli said, he knelt beside his son's body as Salvatore Marino stood over him. He indicated that it was the younger Marino who shot him as he knelt in prayer. Catelli said once he realized he was shot, he decided to play dead. End quote. Wow. That story is cold-blooded. And like I said, the sheer brutality is still remembered even today. And the people I've talked to when it comes to this subject really prefer to stay mum and for good reason, I'd say. Now, I'm not going to say that uh, the younger Catelli, if the story of him trying to extort money out of the Marinos, uh, I'm not going to say he, you know, wasn't in the wrong. Did he deserve to be killed? I don't think I can can say that. I think it could have been settled in certainly a different way. But again, this is the mafia, you know, whether it's San Jose or any other family, this is the mafia. And if you're going to do something like that to a mafia family, well, you have to expect that type of retribution. And like I said, I think he played with fire. And in this case, as unfortunate as it was, especially for his old man and his family, he got burned. In all, five men were charged with murder, attempted murder, conspiracy and kidnapping, including Salvatore Marino, Angelo Marino, Thomas Napolitano, Joseph Piazza and Andrew DiDomenico. And again, as I had said earlier, the trial was moved from San Jose to Los Angeles just to ensure uh, no bias. The original trial itself, beginning in 1979, two years after the murder, and running through 1980, would take five months itself, and then several years to fully unwind. And this is another area where I think Wikipedia kind of gets it wrong. Uh, Wikipedia will say that Marino was convicted on October 12th, 1980, when in fact, he, uh, Angelo Marino, was actually convicted on July 12th, 1980 of second degree murder. Angelo Marino would also be found guilty on other counts, including assault with a deadly weapon, false imprisonment, and conspiracy. He would be found innocent, however, of kidnapping. The other defendant, Joseph Piazza, was found guilty of second-degree murder, but innocent of kidnapping. Andrew DiDomenico was found innocent of conspiracy and kidnapping and had a mistrial declared on his role as an accessory to murder. Now, the alleged shooter, Salvatore Marino, whose trial was actually separated when his attorney became ill, would not be tried right away. After the July convictions of Angelo Marino and the others, reports would come out alleging jury tampering in late 1980, leading to a hung jury and a mistrial for Salvatore Marino in June of 1981. Additionally, the verdicts against Angelo Marino and Joseph Piazza would ultimately be overturned, though the pair would be retried. Piazza's conviction would ultimately be affirmed in August of 1982, while Marino would continue to get delays, delay after delay, due to alleged health problems. Some, uh, you know, maybe alleged, uh, maybe fake, but very real health problems, as you're about to see. After three and a half years of kicking the can down the road and legal maneuvering, it almost seemed like the younger Marino was winning in his defense but it only seemed that way. 
on April 20th, 1982, Salvatore Marino, by this time 33 years old, was convicted of second-degree murder, attempted murder, and false imprisonment. In July of 1982, Salvatore Marino would ultimately be sentenced to just nine years for the slaying and would go away to do his time at San Quentin. Salvatore would get out of prison in the 1990s at some point, and I have it on good authority that he still lives in the area. And while Wikipedia says the following, Salvatore Sal Marino was released from San Quentin prison in 1998 and is said to have taken over the crime family. I've gotten the sense from those that may or may not know him that he's just living his life out in relative anonymity and the, the past is, is the past. I think he's trying to to move on uh, based on what I've heard from people that have, you know, that would be in a position to know. Now, back to the elder Marino, supposedly the boss of the Cerrito crime family at this time. This, this saga, the Catelli saga, the murder, wouldn't ultimately end well for him either, and his recurring health problems would catch up to him before the law would finally bring the hammer down. Weeks before his retrial, Angelo Marino would actually die on February 11, 1983, of a heart attack at Eisenhower Medical Center in Rancho Mirage, California. He would be described in various terms, including a, a mafia boss, chief, chieftain, leader, and captain, among others. His funeral would take place just four days later, and he would be buried at Santa Clara Mission Cemetery along with his family and in the same place as his former boss, Joe Cerrito. Now, while I won't get too deep into what happened to the family after the death of Angelo Marino by the 1980s and early 1990s, the family still appears to have been in operation, according to the FBI. However, it would never truly regain the very limited prestige it had in the 1960s and 1970s and would never again have any level of influence in California or in the world of the mafia as other organized crime groups moved in and took over the territory. Additionally, as we know, beginning in the late 1970s, many massive and well-known tech companies moved into the area, significantly increasing the relative wealth and affluence of the San Jose area. So it became a hub for big tech innovation and no longer was a significant hub for the American mafia. However, a 1992 report out of the San Francisco field office would say the following about the state of the Cerrito crime family. Quote, the San Jose LCN family, to include made members and associates, continue to operate in the South San Francisco Bay Area. It has been confirmed that members and associates of the San Jose LCN family have entered into business ventures outside of Santa Clara, California County area. An investigation that was recently initiated from the REI may determine that various LCN figures in the Santa Clara County and Sacramento, California areas may be associated with the Sicilian Mafia and establishing businesses. During the past investigative period, several members and associates have been in close contact with one another, both through telephonic contact and personal meetings. Specifically, LCN members and associates have been opening Italian restaurants throughout Santa Clara County and also in Folsom, California. 
Investigation has also determined that Blank, reputed boss of the Scarfo Bruno family in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, has been in telephonic contact with Joe Piazza on at least two separate occasions. Joe Bonanno Jr. continues a business relationship with Blank, who operates a construction company in Reno, Nevada area. As previously reported, the San Jose LCN family continues to be loosely affiliated with no one individual acting as the leader or head of the family. It appears that members and associates continue to commit fraud, including bank fraud, loan sharking, extortion, and possibly investment of illicit money into legitimate businesses. End quote. And quite honestly, while I have it on good authority from some people local to the area that the Cerrito crime family and some of its elder members would stay in the criminal database into the 2000s, the local criminal database, uh, the family, if you can even call it that by this point, was less of a cohesive unit and more individual former players living out their final you know, years in relative anonymity. The last real major holdout from the golden era of the family, longtime capo and underboss Emmanuel Manifilia, would retire from day-to-day -day activities and pass away quietly with no fanfare in September of 2009 at the age of 91. As the members aged and with really no leadership presence to speak of, the family would eventually die out and would gradually go defunct or what I believe is, is defunct based on my research. In terms of where things stand now, while there may still be some individual players here and there, I don't think anyone would say that the family nor any of its members are really still active in any, uh, you know, mafia-related criminal activities. There may be, you know, fringe criminal activities, but I don't think it has anything to do these days with the American Cosa Nostra. And with that, I think the story of the Cerrito crime family, once a relatively connected part of the American mafia, despite being relatively ineffectual, is at its end. Okay, that's it for this episode. Again, another expansive episode as always, but I sincerely hope that you maybe learned something you didn't know before. I know I found out plenty of new information, at least to me, as I was going through the research process, which happens to me pretty much every episode. Coming up next, as promised, I may focus on the next installment of the Angelo Bruno series, which has been pretty popular, or I may do some biographies, which are a little bit more quick-hitting one-offs. Either way, I appreciate your support and have a long roadmap of content in store, plenty of things and families to, to cover. On another subject, I'm also considering standing up a, a Patreon channel so that I can share more movie reviews, which are extremely fun to make, but have significant issues getting through YouTube's copyright algorithms. But stay tuned for that. Uh, you know, if you could leave a comment, and let me know if you'd be open to that. I think that would be that would be great. And I could definitely come up with some exclusive you know, benefits for Patreon users. Not that I don't love my YouTube audience, but could be a way to to sneak out some bonus content and early access content. Also, as I've mentioned before, I, I'm still looking to do more interviews, but not just any interview. I, you know, I've had a few good interviews to this point, and I'm specifically looking for the not 
you know, the normal talking heads of YouTube, people that have stories of, you know, running up against organized crime, either as a result of being in that life, but more likely a lot of the people that I've talked to, many have been reticent to kind of share their stories, but I've talked to people behind the scenes that definitely were closely affiliated or, you know, definitely living in parallel with the life, so to speak. Uh, and like I said, uh, you know, if you're one of those people and you're willing to share your story, please email me at membersonlypodcastshow at gmail.com. I'd love to talk with you. Lastly, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy my content as it's released. And if you have any thoughts, please leave them in the comments on YouTube or write us a review on Apple. Again, good, bad, ugly. I'll take anything. And feel free to check out our website at membersonlypodcast.com uh, and check out our merch store. Follow me on Twitter or Facebook. I'm not as active there, but please check out our website. Check out the merch store. I've created a, a few uh, really cool pieces of merchandise. I've got a mugshot collection uh, of t-shirts, black on gray, that I think you'll you'll really like. Uh, so check it out. Uh, I'm still a, a relatively small channel and could use all the help that I can get to grow. We're growing very organically, very quickly. Like I said, we, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were at 7,000. Now we're at 8,000. My hope is soon to get it up over 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, but until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.